Good morning. Is it good now? Okay. Um, thank you for singing that song with me. And um, I think you'll hear from my talk how it ties in. Ready? Okay. I'm Candace Fritz, and I have attended ZF um, for 15 years this September. Um, I've been a part of Habits in the evening at the beginning when I worked at the middle school, and then in the daytime when I've had kids. So I see um, many new faces this year, and that encourages me because um, 15 years ago I was a new face. Uh, many of you know that my mother-in-law was very involved in habits, and Pat um, was my first habits leader, and she said, I have a son, and so um, I have habits uh, to help me study God's Word, but also to having God orchestrate my family. <laughs> so I'm very happy to be here with you today to study God's Word, and habits is truly a way to go deep into God's Word and to learn to know God more. I'm so glad you're here. We get to study and examine what God has revealed to us about himself. And before the fellowship week, Kathy did a wonderful overview of First and Second Samuel. Um, today, I get to put on my nerd glasses, and I get to start, start us off with the first three chapters. Before we start, though, um, I'd like to pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to study your word. Thank you for revealing who you are to us in your son, Jesus. Please have your Holy Spirit to focus our minds and our hearts as we dig into your truth. May we be humble to receive your grace and mercy and to know and love you more. And in your name I pray, amen. So I honestly feel like I could study just these three chapters for the whole first semester. There is so much there. But I'll just present the framework of characterization so as to not keep us too long. In our study, the second page on page 13 asked you to map each major character introduced in these chapters to the description that fits them and to note in a positive or a negative or a neutral sign next to their name. Well, I did that. And then I went on a deep dive to prepare for my talk this morning. I'm using a characterization framework I made to keep this information organized. And the notes that you got is a shortened version um, where you can kind of insert what you learn from my talk in. Um, the reason I did this is I'm trying to match the author of Samuel. He's introducing his whole scroll First and Second Samuel is one scroll. Um, he's introducing this scroll with these characters. So what do these characters show and tell about how we should read the rest of the scroll? And how should we apply God's written wisdom to our lives? I found this book this summer, Family Portraits, Character Studies in First and Second Samuel by Randy McCracken. It's helped me in preparing, and I'm going to share some insights from it. The first is a quote that shows how God uses story to reveal himself. 
It is through the medium of narrative that readers first learn what God is like, what life is about, how life is to be lived, and how God and people interact. God can write, thou shall and thou shalt not, but he can also use people to show us types of moral character or immoral character to then give us wisdom how to live. Throughout First and Second Samuel, we are going to be shown and or told, and sometimes both, what the people are doing. Details are always in the Bible for a reason, but gaps are also there for a reason. Next week, when we learn more about Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, Samuel will not be mentioned in those stories. That's to make sure that we don't associate those events with Samuel, God's prophet and kingmaker. There's comparison and contrast for each of the characters in Samuel, and oftentimes learning the negative of one character enhances the positive of another, or learning the negative acts as a warning to examine your own heart. That's actually what prompted me to study the first three chapters this way. Earlier this summer, my friend Christy Wolford examined the difference between Samuel and, or excuse me, Saul and Jonathan. Where Saul was doing things in his own power and rebelling against God, Jonathan was honoring God and relying on the Lord's strength. In examining my heart, I unfortunately was more like Saul. Thankfully, the wisdom of God applied to my mind and my heart has been transforming me and drawing me closer to him. So now we'll show the uh, character outline that you have in your notes. These characters presented in the first three chapters of Samuel, we're going to walk through the characters' names, meaning the direct characterization of what we are told by the narrator, because that's truthful, and the indirect characterization of what we are shown, and even the included movement details give us insight and application. We can connect the cultural background, the relationships, the comparisons and contrasts of other characters in the Bible, and like you studied for our lesson this week, we can see how God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. So we'll start with Elkanah on your um, sheet. And his name means that God has created or God redeemed. And what we are told by the narrator is that he has two wives and he loves Hannah. We are also told that he's from the high country of Ephraim. In our study, we looked up and learned about his hometown to realize that he's a Levite. The original audience would have known that without looking it up. But they also would have understood his name to mean that God is creating a new, redeeming and fashioning a new story for the tribe of Israel. This scroll of Samuel is going to be about God doing something new in the establishment of a king and redeeming the people who repent to turn to him. It's also paralleling Elkanah and the patriarchs of the faith. He has two wives, just like Abraham, just like Jacob. There's also favoritism going on because he loves Hannah more, just like Isaac and Rebekah. This just further links him to those founding patriarchs. And even though he's imperfect and doesn't quite understand the pain that Hannah is in, 
He is abundantly generous in his worship and has integrity throughout the verses that depict him to us because he keeps his vow and he instructs Hannah to keep hers. He's being presented as a faithful follower of the God of Abraham, and he too offers his son to the Lord of lords to use. Since the book of Samuel follows after Judges in the Hebrew Bible, and there are many ties back to Judges, looking at Elkanah at the beginning of the story is a great offering of hope. God is going to redeem the terribleness of Judges when everyone has done what is right in their own eyes. And because Elkanah brings his family to worship at the established house of the Lord at Shiloh, we learn that he is not like the Levite at the end of Judges that set up his own shrine for hire. We learn that God can use imperfect people who come to worship, even despite dark circumstances. And imagine the miserable circumstances Elkanah was in. Two wives. <laughs> where one, though loved, cannot be consoled and is weeping and not eating, and the other wife who knows she is second best and potentially unloved, and we are told that she lashes out as a rival. Penina's name could mean ruby or pearl, the idea of a beautiful exterior, and a name that even suggests prolific in Hebrew. And we are told that she has children. But more importantly, we are told that she provokes Hannah to tears. In an ancient culture of honor and shame, where you were considered dishonored to be barren, Penina should not have to be worried about competing with Hannah. Penina had already won by having children. But because we are told that she provokes Hannah to tears and she is Hannah's rival, we can interpret that instead of drawing near to the Lord at the house of Shiloh, to worship and thankfulness, she is prideful in considering herself already exalted. And since Hannah has favoritism with Elkanah, Penina's bitterness of not having it all spills out. Penina is not coming to the Lord with her broken heart. In contrast, Hannah does turn to the Lord. Hannah's name means grace or favor. But she is described with bitterness, anguish, affliction, sorrow, vexation, and emptiness because she would not eat. We are told that the Lord has closed her womb. So in her circumstances, how can she trust that her name means favored? She was culturally living in shame her entire married life. Everyone would have been wondering what she had done to bring such dishonor on herself. And the wife that is providing Elkanah children is provoking her to tears to add to her torment. Hannah has persevered in going up to Shiloh year after year with her family. But now, this year, she doesn't respond to her husband's band-aid of a fix with the offer of, aren't I enough for ten sons? and she cannot be calmed down with her embitterment by giving, being given a double portion of food. She is desperate for deliverance. Again, the context of what is going on among the tribes of Israel truly matters. Hannah knows how badly the corruption of power has spread throughout the tribes of Israel. She's living it on a personal level with Penina and with an understanding of what is happening at the house of the Lord at Shiloh with the priests Hophni and Phinehas. 
Hannah knows the corruption, that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when she prays silently in her heart, she's the first person in the Bible to do so, she um, is wholly dependent on God. Also, when she gives her response to the priest Eli, accusing her of being drunk, she boldly and honestly defends herself as not a worthless woman like his sons. She is brave and honest, and she is asking the Lord to remember her, to act, and to be the one who gives deliverance. Because she vows to give the Lord of armies, also the first time this title for the Lord is used, um, and because she's asking with a vow for a son with the Nazarite vow, um, we can know that she's not praying for self-centered deliverance, she is praying for the deliverance from all of this corruption. She's dedicating her son with a Nazareth vow to be used by God to reverse it all. So Hannah's bitter countenance is changed when Eli speaks, may the Lord do for you as you have asked. And Hannah comes to the Lord with her anger, with her depression, with her emptiness, and she pours it all out to him. But notice that her countenance is changed before any circumstance is changed. And the next morning, she worships. And then the Lord remembers her, and she has a son. Every time the Lord remembers in Scripture, it's a description of a reversal that he has initiated. Then the integrity of her family keeps their vow by offering the bull and their son to the Lord. Hannah's psalm of worship and thanksgiving to the Lord starts with the reversal of her circumstances, but then prophetically praises God for the reversals he is going to do. Her thanksgiving recognizes that the Lord is the one who takes her empty womb and her empty poured out soul and fills it. And he is the one who raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and he makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So now the author of Samuel contrasts the faithfulness of Elkanah and Hannah's family with the rebellion of house of Eli. There are only four main families in the book of Samuel. Samuel's family, David's family, and the paralleled families of Eli and Saul. Both Eli and Saul start with grand impressions, but appearances can be deceiving, and both their houses fall. Eli's name is shortened as shortened form of Yahweh is exalted. In Hebrew, Eli just means exalted. We are told that Eli is sitting on the seat of the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. The Hebrew is that he is sitting on the throne as the enforcer of God's laws at the palace. Because there's a different word sometimes translated for tabernacle and palace. But we are told he is very old and his eyesight is dim. The physical depiction is also indicative of his spiritual condition. He is a weak man who harshly rebukes Hannah for appearing drunk but does not restrain his sons for actual offenses against the Lord. In Hebrew, restrain and dim are the same word. 
We also have the contrast between Eli and Samuel in chapter 3. Samuel is eager to hear and serve. Eli never gets up from laying down. When chapter 3 opens with, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, a quote from my book um, explains it further. The reason that the word of the Lord was rare in those days was the lack of godly leadership in Israel interested in hearing what God had to say. Eli is in the next room and never comes from his bed that night to hear what the Lord says. He doesn't listen to the man of God in chapter 2, the warning that those that honor God will be honored and those that dishonor him will be lightly esteemed is never heeded. So Hophni um, and Finhas are together and they're Egyptians' names. Um, this harkens back to God delivered them from Egypt and because they have Egyptian names, God's going to end up delivering them from this idea of Egypt all over again, right? Okay, but <laughs> it's very funny. Hophni's Egyptian name means tadpole. And Finhas is the same name as Aaron's son, and I ended up looking it up, but it's just the Egyptian for the bronzed one. So Hophni and Finhas never heed what their father instructs or what the Lord says either. They are gluttonous takers who, another quote from Family Portraits, treated the sacrificial system with such disregard that same system designed to bring them atonement would be useless to them. Think about it. They are supposed to be priests of the Most High God. Instead, they are robbing from the faithful worshipers at Shiloh, abusing the women at the temple, and utterly expressing their contempt for God and God's design for being made clean in order to worship a holy God. Hophni and Phinehas are worthless men, and God wants to rid the rebellion from his priesthood and his people. Because they do not heed the Lord, because they do not know the Lord, the sign that will establish Samuel as the Lord's prophet and priest is not that Samuel is wearing a linen ephod and ministering in the temple and wearing a sweet robe from his mother. It's that Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day. The Lord of armies deals with corruption and rebellion. The Lord opposes the proud. Samuel's prophecy of Eli's house being dealt with is proven true. And the author of Samuel establishes this Deuteronomy 18 principle of testing prophecies by verifying that they actually happen. Therefore, Samuel's authority was recognized throughout the whole of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba. Samuel's name meaning is possibly bearing the name of God and possibly uh, ask of the Lord. In contrast to the house of Eli not heeding the Lord, Samuel is eager and able to say, Speak, for your servant is listening. He's running and growing in goodness and favor with the Lord, in contrast to the priest Eli who is old, heavy, and laying on his bed. The entire third chapter is transitioning authority from the old blind priest to the young hearing prophet. We are told that the Lord is with Samuel. We are told that the Lord called Samuel before the lamp of the Lord went out. Chapter 3 began with the spiritual darkness of the land. There was no frequent vision. The physical darkness of night and the physical dim eyes of Eli. And that correlating spiritual darkness we know of Eli. 
In such a time of spiritual darkness, corrupt leadership, and oppression, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it, it is apparent that things are bleak. But God is a God of history, and he steps in to provide a way of deliverance. The last quote I'll read for you sums up the introduction of Samuel, and it's so well done. And it's on your screen so you can read along. This is a surprising way to begin a book that deals with power. An ordinary family from the mountains of Ephraim who have no strong political connections or religious authority is its focus. More than that, the heroine of the story is a social outcast, a woman who is considered a failure, who brings nothing to the table but her emptiness and her complaint and grief. Yet it is this empty, depressed woman caught up in a family cycle which involves the dysfunctional quality of bigamy, favoritism, and animosity who God chooses to use. We are faced here with a kind of power that is not of this world. It is the kind of power that finds strength in weakness, wisdom in foolishness, and life in death. It is incredible to think that God uses this nobody of a woman in the eyes of her peers to transform the entire history of Israel. It is because of Hannah's prayer of faith and her ability to rise above her personal pain and see the bigger picture of God's glory that Samuel is born. Samuel will bring reform to the priesthood, revive the prophetic word in Israel, and begin to deliver Israel from its arch enemy, the Philistines. It's also Samuel who will inaugurate a new era in Israel by anointing Saul king, and eventually, and most importantly, David. And it is to David that God promises an enduring house, which in turn will lead to the future messianic expectation. Yet this chain of events is set in motion by a weak, empty woman who chose to find her strength in an all-powerful God, who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and to make them inherit a throne of glory. So the Lord enters in when it's darkest. He brings the dawn of salvation he orchestrates the reversals. He's the one who provides the ultimate reversal in his son, Jesus. The one who lived and died for the forgiveness of sins and rose again to be seated at the right hand of the Father. So, like we sang as we, um, before we started, and as we dove deeper into the first three chapters of 1 Samuel, will you come to the one who can redeem and reverse it all? Will you come broken to be mended? Will you come wounded to be healed? Will you come desperate to be rescued? And will you come empty to be filled? Will you come guilty to be pardoned? Jesus is welcoming you with open arms, just as you are.